0: Would Turn in your New Testaments to Second Peter chapter 1. We'll be there in a moment in Second Peter chapter 1. Appreciate Chris reading that for us and preparing our minds for the study of the hour. It's a joy to be with you and to be able to worship together. I appreciate all who have participated in the leadership this morning, and I appreciate you for your participation. Thankful for any visitors that are in our midst. I want you to know that you're certainly welcome at any other opportunity that you might have. It's always a joy to see others who are interested in the truth. And if you have any questions that you'd like to ask us, feel free to ask those after services. We'd love to talk about those with you and study the Bible together so that we can come to an understanding of what God would have for us to be. We are seeking to do everything in accordance with the will of God here at 84th Street and we'd love for you to ask us about why we do what we do and perhaps why we don't do the things that you may find are missing in your experiences as you compare what you've experienced with what we're doing here this morning. I hope that this lesson will be a benefit to you and that we can make some application of it to our lives and be better servants of our Lord. In Second Peter chapter 1 and in verse 4 you notice, and as we read earlier, In the scripture reading, God has given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. He says that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We're going to talk a little bit about this context, but from the very start it should be impressive how this is even put in the original, and especially as it's translated for us to understand into English. He has given to us exceedingly Great and precious promises. He uses a the superlative there. He doesn't just say he's given to us great and precious promises, but exceedingly great and precious promises. And that impresses me as we read the New Testament how many superlatives are used by the Holy Spirit to describe to us the blessings that God has bestowed upon us because he's trying to make the point that we do from time to time in our lives, put some emphasis and to something that may already inherently have some emphasis. And it drives the point home about how strong and powerful these things are, how much God loves us, and how much He wants us to partake in these matters. And they are precious to us. In the original, it says, By which precious to us and exceedingly great promises have been given. They are precious to those who have that like precious faith He speaks of in verse 1. Because we are those who seek the spiritual and long for heaven, what God has promised us is certainly precious. And we see that as exceedingly great. But more than that, His promises are necessary. We recently studied in Galatians chapter 3 about the promise that was given to Abraham and that was transcendent above the law of Moses, that the law of Moses was merely that, instrument to get us to the promise in Christ. And he stresses in Galatians 3 and verse 18, if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. The promises are not just beneficial to us and wonderful to talk about, but they are necessary. You cannot be saved. You cannot have hope. You cannot be who God calls you to be without Him promising you these And Romans 9 and in verse 8, the Apostle Paul in another place says that it is those who are of the children of the flesh. That is not those who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. We've always got to remember that, that the only reason we have anything good and any hope in our lives as children of God is because he promised. And we can't do anything without his promises. And even further than that, we take Comfort in the fact that his promises, while necessary, are certain. Titus 1 and in verse 2, the Apostle Paul says that we have that hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. And in Hebrews, the sixth chapter, that point is made that by the immutability of God's counsel, that he he cannot change. And when he speaks, he speaks truth and will not repent of what he has spoken that by that promise and oath we can have strong consolation. His promises are certain. So these exceedingly great and precious promises are very important to us, and we need to understand them. And I think what we also need to understand is that when God promises something to us, especially some of the things we're going to talk about this morning, it's not something that we have a passive relationship in. And so when Paul stresses as he does throughout the New Testament in his writings, that it's not of the law and perfect keeping of the law, but it's according to promise. He is not saying that we have nothing to do with this. He's not saying that God promises it and we passively somehow receive it. We don't do anything. It doesn't really involve us. You know, someone may be given a promise of, of a gift. And other than just having that gift in their possession, where before they did not have that possession of the gift, they really have nothing to do with that gift. It's something separate and apart from them. But God calls us to actually be participating within these promises. They involve a, a change. They involve who we will become and what we will be and how we will live and where we are going, certainly. But they're not passive. They're something we're actively involved in. And so Peter speaks of these exceedingly great and precious promises. But I think that It behooves us to talk about the context in which Peter introduces these promises he describes as exceedingly great and precious. And I think we're familiar with 2 Peter, that it is an epistle that, like many epistles, addresses some false teachers and their doctrine that the brethren are dealing with. In chapter 2 and verse 1, he says that there were false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. He describes them in the third chapter, in the 16th verse, as those who are untaught and unstable, and they twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. And so as Peter nears the end of his life, as we see there in chapter 1 and verses 12 through 15, he thinks it very necessary to remind them of these things. As long as he has breath. In his lungs, he's going to remind them of these things so that when he departs, they are equipped to stand against error. And there are two main components, I think, to the error of these false teachers. Firstly, I want us to note in chapter 3 and verse 4, they say, where is the promise of God's coming? We sang about the coming of God a couple of times this morning, and we sing about it often, and we talk about how we are expecting the coming of the Lord. In fact... Every first day of the week, we partake of the Lord's Supper, speaking about something that happened in the past and proclaiming that until something happens in the future, until He comes. It is a proclamation of His death, burial, and resurrection, and the redemption we have in His blood and His sacrifice, as well as a proclamation of the expectation of His return. And they were undermining that very fundamental Doctrine within the New Testament saying where is the promise of His coming? And here's their foolish logic, if you will, in verse 4 of chapter 3. What they say is since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. His His coming boasts of a universal destruction and judgment. And they're saying, erringly, mistakenly, I think willfully in ignorance that nothing like that on that kind of a scale with that kind of a force has ever happened in the history of existence. And what they willfully forget, he says, is that by the word of God in verse 5, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which then the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth are now preserved by the same word and are reserved for fire until the day of judgment a perdition of ungodly men. He says you forget one very important thing, piece of history. There was a universal worldwide destruction and judgment in the days of Noah. And they willfully forget this. It's not that they didn't have the information. It's not that that was not prophet or, or spoken about by inspired men. It's not that they did not have the record. They willfully forgot. But the big reason they're deciding he's not coming is because of a lapsed time. That's been promised since the beginning of the preaching of the gospel. The resurrection gospel, implicitly, but also throughout sermons and Scripture explicitly, states that He is coming again. He left and went in the clouds into the heavens in Acts chapter 1, and they were told He's going to return in the same way. He is returning But because time has elapsed, they say he must not be returning. In chapter 2 and verse 5, he mentions Noah. And he mentions him as a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. In Genesis chapter 6, it demonstrates that God said that he will be with man yet 120 years. He's going to give them time. Noah's going to preach. And for that amount of time, Noah is preaching. They are making fun of him, no doubt. They are doubting what he's preaching concerning the flood and the universal judgment. And he's bringing in that flood on them. And the same thing is happening here. They are denying the coming of the Lord. And through the preaching of the gospel, that is bringing it in upon them. They will see the coming of the Lord, even though they doubt it. They sought to discredit the apostles' doctrine and their eyewitness testimony. Chapter 1 speaks about how they spoke of His power and coming as they were eyewitnesses of His majesty. His parousia, where He's coming again, it will come with power that was looked to in His transfiguration. And even though they saw His glory, and especially the kind of glory He's going to come in appearance with on that great day, Though they were eyewitnesses, these men are rejecting it. Secondly, and related to it, I think, that as they deny the promise of His coming, they also live in their fleshly lust and promise others a false security and liberty to do whatever it is they want. And I think these two things are intimately related. Notice in chapter 3 and verse 3, he says that scoffers will come in the last days Walking according to their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of His coming? It tells me, I think, one of two things. It tells me that their preaching of a denial of the coming of the Lord is because of their own lusts. Because they want to walk in sin and do what they want, they are going to espouse a doctrine that would allow them to do so. There will be no judgment. There will be no reckoning, and so I can do what I want. Secondly, any false doctrine, even if it's because of, which I think most are, a desire to do what we want, it will inevitably lead to doing whatever it is you want. Because he's not coming, they say, you can do what you want. You can live how you want to live. And there are nuances to the reason why they're saying this, but I think that's a key Notice in chapter 2 and verse 18, They speak great swelling words of emptiness and allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. They promise them liberty, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. To the degree that before he described them as brute beasts, behaving as animals that is, who have eyes full of adultery, verse 14, and cannot cease from sin. They're fooling only themselves. They think that they have liberty and they're slaves of corruption, and when the Lord does indeed come, they'll see it very clearly. They are those who took the long-suffering of the Lord for granted, which is why the Apostle Peter says, He's not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness. He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to Repentance. Just like the Jews, Paul addressed in Romans 2 and verse 4, they despised the riches of his goodness, not knowing the longsuffering of the Lord was leading them to repentance. Just like the people that Jude addresses in his epistle in verse 4, who turned the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They were those who were twisting The grace of God, as he says in verse 16, the scriptures that spoke of the long-suffering of the Lord to their own destruction. And so it speaks about false teachers and their need to be wary of it and to combat that error with truth, which necessitates their personal growth. He ends the epistle with the same thing he began it with, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But I want us to notice what that call to growth is a response to. In verse 17, the idea began. You therefore, as they twist the Scriptures to their own destruction, you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because they are going to scoff at His coming and will tell you lies which leads into a life lived of lies, that you have liberty when indeed you are slaves of corruption, back in bondage to sin and death. You need to grow. Don't be deceived. Don't be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Rather, accept the promise of God that He is returning and live accordingly. Verse 11 Since all these things, chapter 3, verse 11, will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Which is the very context of him speaking of the long-suffering of our Lord as salvation, because in verse 14 he says, looking forward to these things, that is, they're not yet here, God is long-suffering. There is a period of time in between the promise and his actual coming. You take advantage of that by being diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And so you see the relationship between the call to growth and the addressing of this error and the possibility of their apostasy if they're not aware of it being error. And that's how he began his epistle. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And ends it so the whole epistle is about their need to grow and be fortified against error and be willing to understand That freedom is not in doing whatever it is that you want to do in the flesh. I think there's an important principle, though, that comes with this call to their growth that also is something intimately related to the very error that was going to be taught to them. Notice he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. These errorists are those who are described in chapter 2 and verse 1 as those who even deny the Lord who bought them. You might remember in 1 John chapter 2, speaking of those who are anti-Christ as those who deny that Jesus is the Christ. And in chapter 4, that's kind of elaborated upon. In what way do they deny Him? These are the people who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, but they say He has not come in the flesh. Those people are not God. It's likely that these are people who would later be known as the Gnostics. And one of the things that they taught is that the flesh is inherently sinful, so Jesus did not actually enter into flesh. And so that logically leads into this idea that we can't escape from sin because flesh is inherently sinful. And so we are at liberty to do what we want in the flesh because we've transcended through this ultimate anointing and knowledge that you don't have. And so you can continue in sin and still be right with God. And so that flies in the face with this idea of growth in the knowledge of Jesus because the word knowledge he uses is epinosis. R.C. Trench describes it as a deeper and more intimate knowledge and acquaintance. Vine says this of epinosis. It expresses a fuller or full knowledge, a greater participation by the knower in the object known, thus more powerfully influencing him. And so it's a participant knowledge. The very fact that he's calling them to grow in this knowledge is proof that they can live free from sin. That they can do that which these libertarianists were claiming is impossible to do. And doesn't that fit with what we're dealing with today? In the church, those who claim that we cannot live free from sin, we cannot live righteous lives, we cannot help but sin. This whole call to growth shows that we absolutely can And that we must. And so there are important implications to think about in this epistle before we get to these exceedingly great and precious promises. That they include the fact of the Lord's coming is certain. But that it includes the preparation for His coming by purification of ourselves is also certain. Not just that it's necessary... But that it's possible when he says, you'd be diligent to be found without spot and blameless in chapter 3 and verse 14. Is he telling us to do something that we can't do? Absolutely not. And I want to tell you that the promises have a lot to do with that as a possibility. Because God has promised and his promises are certain. The fact that this growth out of sin and into righteousness is central to these promises that he speaks about. So consider a few of these promises, and I think that there are many promises, obviously, in Scripture that fall into this idea of God giving us exceedingly great and precious promises. I don't think that he necessarily enumerates them here. He doesn't give a list of these exceedingly great and precious promises. But these promises certainly can be found in part in this section of Scripture. And I want to suggest to you first that one of those exceedingly great and precious promises is the provision that he mentions in verse 3. He wants them to grow in grace and peace and he says His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. And so when we think of the promises of God, don't just think of the promise of heaven and don't just think of the promise of the redemption of our body and don't just think of the promise of Christ's return, but what about the promise that we have everything we need to see the realization of those promises? That's every bit as much important. The fact that God says you were left with everything that you need to get you to the realization of your hope is supreme in importance. He's given us all things, He says that pertain to life and godliness? Do you believe that He's given us all things? It seems that some are starting to doubt that we have all things. That, that maybe there's something left out. Maybe we need to add something to it. What, what about the things that we can't read about? Well, that's the point. Those aren't the things that are necessary that pertain to life and godliness because God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things that pertain to life. He's speaking about this spiritual life, the fellowship with God, the fact that sin has separated us from God and through knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, we have all things that pertain to us coming back into fellowship with God. And remember that knowledge is a participant knowledge. It's a stronger knowledge. So it's not this illumination, salvation like the Gnostics would have us believe that you you come to salvation just through intellectual processes. But it is a participation, and obedient faith, if you will. This is why in 1 John 2 and verse 3, the Apostle John said this, now by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. We ought to uh, walk as He walked, verse 6, if we say we abide in Him. It's everything that pertains to us getting back into a relationship with God, having spiritual life is imparted to us through knowledge, everything we need to do and follow to be right with Him. We recently studied from Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, where we speak about that great messianic promise of His death on the cross and the deliverance from sin. But at the end of that chapter, there's something very important that was mentioned in verse 11 of Isaiah 53, He shall see the labor of his soul. The Messiah will see the fruits of his labor and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. I thought it was by his death. Well, it certainly is. But it is through the knowledge that we come into the access of that sacrifice for our sins. And and everything to get us access into that sacrifice... God has supplied us with all things that pertain to life and he says all th- all things that pertain to godliness. Do you want to be right with God and live right before him? Are you mindful of God and do you know what he would require of you? Look no further than what we have in the New Testament is what Peter's saying. You have everything you need. How do how do I become a better Christian? How do I live the life that God has called me to live? You ever wonder to yourself whether there's a secret that you're missing out on? There's so many godly people that surround me and I just wonder what I'm missing. Well, maybe we just need to get our nose in the book a little more because that's where it's found. He said everything you need to know about living a pious life before God in fellowship with Him is given to you by His divine power and the knowledge of Jesus. But notice there, His divine power has given to us all of these things. You can't help but think of Romans 1 and verse 16. And I think that's a very valid connection to make. There's some depth to this, I think, that even goes beyond that. But the fact that the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes is significant. His power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus. What is that? Where is that power? It's not an experience. It's it's not even... Inherently miraculous, because it's the same power that we have right here. It is confirmed by miracles, which I think is a part of this. Through the miracles that revealed and confirmed, we can know it is indeed truth which can save. But we have it entirely in the gospel. You realize the connection of that? The word dunamis, this dynamite power of God to salvation, that it is in the pages of the New Testament. You have all the power you need within the pages of the New Testament to be saved. And I think that's one of the points that, that Jesus was making in his miracle he performed in Mark chapter 2. Because I want us to notice something. In Mark 2, when this man who was paralyzed was told that his sins are forgiven, and he knew the Pharisees heart, and he says, you know, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or say arise, take up your bed and walk? I want us to notice the word he uses in Mark 2 and verse 10. Jesus said, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said, take up your bed and go to your house. And we know that that's exactly what happened because he has that power. But the word power here in Mark 2 and verse 10 is exousia. It's the same word translated authority in Matthew 28 and verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You see the connection there, though? His authority... The fact that He has the right to tell us to do something, He has the commanding power, is expressed and validated in His miraculous power. And and once that's confirmed, then we can rest assured that this is how we're going to be judged in the end. You see that point? Through His power, He has given us in the knowledge of Jesus all things that pertain to life and godliness, which tells me not only will I be judged by it, but if I trust in it, and do what it says, I trust in its promises, I will be changed immensely, because that's the power that's involved. Power that only rests with the divine. All things, he says. It's sufficient. When Jesus promised the giving of the Holy Spirit to the apostles and the revelation of truth, he said that he'll teach you all things, John 14 and in verse 26. In John 16 and in verse 7, he says, He will not come to you if I do not depart. And then he says in verse 12, I have many things to tell you, but the Spirit of truth, when He has come, He will guide you into all truth. All. There's nothing lacking. All truth will come through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. You notice in John 16 and verse 12, he says in verse 13 rather, uh, Nope. Nope. In verse 7 it was. He says, It's to your advantage that I go away. If I do not depart, He will not come. Jesus is speaking about His death, burial, and His resurrection. I want us to think about that. His death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension. And when He departs, then He'll send the Spirit of truth. If I don't depart, He will not come. And He needs to come so you can have all truth. Notice what Paul said in Romans 8 in verse 31. When he's speaking about our triumph in Christ, he says in Romans 8 in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And notice what he says here in verse 32 of Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If Jesus died, And he was raised from the dead. And he ascended to receive his kingdom. If God was willing to send his own son, we know that happened. We know that's factual. And he had promised to give us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Why can't we have confidence in that? Everything we need is in the gospel plan. These all things that work together for them that love God. It goes all the way back to this law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus at the beginning of chapter 8. If we walk in that, we have everything we need. And we will be more than conquerors through His Son. Can't we trust that? It's the very point of the Apostle Peter in chapter 1 of Second Peter. You have all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so when these false teachers come, you trust in what you know to be true. He says in verse 19 of chapter 1 in 2 Peter, after speaking of the eyewitness testimony, that we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in the dark place. You understand what he's saying here? You can trust in our gospel because we were eyewitnesses. That's a great point of the apostleship. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Eyewitnesses of His majesty. Eyewitnesses of the glory of God in the face of Christ as He dwelt in the flesh, as Harry mentioned. But this phrase here is very important. He says we have the prophetic word Confirmed. The New King James Version has a footnote that says we also have the more sure prophetic word. That's the point. The word confirmed is a Greek word which means trusty, of something that can be relied on not to cause disappointment. He's saying you can trust it based on the eyewitness testimony, but something that is even more sure than that is the inspired word of God, of all things that pertain to life and godliness. What a wonderful promise that everything we need To get to heaven and to live like God calls us to live is here in the truth. And that was a little longer point because all these others come from it. He says, you have all things that pertain to life and godliness. God has not lacked in His provision. It's completely sufficient. And that will lead you to this next promise being realized. That through these exceedingly great and precious promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust partakers of the divine nature. Here he talked about the Godhead, the divine nature. And that there is a nature that is divine and it is shared by only three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But what he's saying is that you can participate in that nature. He's not saying you can become God. But he's saying all that Jesus revealed in His flesh, the way that He lived, the virtues that He revealed and embodied all that attracted you to him he called us by his glory and virtue you can participate in that it's a wonderful thing that we can live like christ lived and that's the very point you can be a partaker a participant a sharer in who jesus is and that's that idea of his epinosis it's a participant knowledge And so when we view Jesus by faith in the gospel, we're not viewing him just by mere observation. It's not just for mere admiration. It is for imitation. And there are some who would have you believe that's impossible. That's not the promise God made us. He promised us that you can indeed participate in it. So notice there in chapter 2, or chapter 1 rather, of 2 Peter, he says, for this very reason, in verse 5, What very reason? The fact that God has promised you that you have everything you need in the gospel and that will allow you to participate in the divine nature. Again, remember, these promises are not passive. They call us to practice and inclusion in them. So for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith, virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Now notice in verse 8 what he says. For if these things are yours and abound, these things he just enumerated, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge, that's the same word, epinosis, of our Lord Jesus Christ. If that knowledge is a participant knowledge, then certainly the point is we can participate in who Jesus is. And this is how you do it, is what he's saying. You follow what the gospel teaches. You add to your faith these virtues. And you can participate in who God is. That's what fellowship is. It's not a relationship that is still separated by sin. It's the very opposite. Sin is not there so you can have a relationship. And that relationship is participatory. It is a sharing together, a partaking together. He's called us to live like His Son. Someone says, nope, we can't do it. It's impossible. You're speaking blasphemy because that's the whole point of the gospel. No, the whole point of the gospel is to save you from your sins so that you can live that new life in Christ Jesus. But we can't do it without Him. That's certainly the case. Some people try to live like Christ and be a better person and be a good Christian, and they're trying to do it without these things which have been provided for that very goal to be reached. Jesus said in John 15 and verse 5 I am the vine, and you are the branches, and you abide in me, and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. You will be barren and unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus if you don't trust in his help through the gospel. We are promised by God this sufficient provision, this participation in the things of God and being as Christ is. But He's also promised us protection. And so we we may agree that we have provided all things in the gospel, that we have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, and are therefore in fellowship with God, partakers of the divine nature. But I am so worried about what's going to happen next. But that's the beauty of God's infinite knowledge and wisdom and foresight. He not only provided all we need in the gospel so that we can participate in Christ, but through that gospel, He has set up the hedge of protection. And it's the same thing as our participation. We've got to come into faith and follow it in that kind of trust. But don't doubt that promise that He speaks of. He says you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus if you add these things to your faith. He says, if you lack these things, you're short-sighted even to blindness and have forgotten that you were cleansed from your old sins. Forgotten what the point of that is, to live like Christ. Notice verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. Now the Calvinist says, you see there, the elect cannot lose their salvation. You cannot fall from grace. That's not what he's saying. Because did you notice there in verse 9, he says, He who lacks these things is short-sighted and has forgotten he is cleansed from his old sins. Who was cleansed from their old sins except those who had become children of God? But now you are lacking these things and you are falling away. That's his point. In fact, the very false teachers that he's addressing are those who had crept in from among the brethren in chapter 2 and verse 1. Among you is just like the false prophets among the Israelites. He's not talking about Gentiles merely that came in and were trying to prophesy to the Jews, and they could know, well, they're not true because they're Gentiles. He's speaking about those false prophets we read of in Isaiah in our last quarterly study. People that were claiming to be from God, who were certainly of the Jewish people. They were among them. And it's the same thing here. There are people who have obeyed the gospel who are going to teach false doctrines. Certainly apostasy is possible. But I think he's even furthermore saying that you will never stumble at the end. He's telling us, if you are diligent in adding to your faith, if you are walking by faith and growing in the gospel, as long as you are implementing the word of God in your life, sin will not creep in, ever. When it does, you have ceased to apply God's word. It's similar to what we read in 1 John 3 and in verse 9, where John says, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Why cannot he sin? His seed is in him. The word of God is in him. In Psalm 119 and in verse 11, the psalmist said, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. That is a promise of God. We value the promises of God. We should value this, that it is possible to live free from sin. Just like John said in 1 John 2, that doesn't mean that you might not ever sin. That's why we still have an advocate. But I've written these things that you may not sin. Is that possible? John would not have said it if it wasn't. Peter would not have listed it as a promise if it were not true. I think that there is a point to be emphasized in that word stumble. It's used five times in the New Testament. I want us to notice a few. There's one of them, obviously, here in Second Peter 1. In Romans 11 and verse 11, speaking of those Jews who had rejected the Christ, he says, I say then, have they stumbled, that's the word, that they should fall? Certainly not, but through their faults provoke them to jealousy. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. He's speaking about their sin and rejecting the Messiah. And then he says, did they stumble so as to never, ever have hope again? That's the point. It's this transgression that they committed. In James 2 and verse 10, it's used. Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point. He is guilty of all. What's he talking about? Losing your soul for eternity? This final apostasy? He's talking about sinning in one point of the law. Notice in James 3 and in verse 2, we all stumble in many things. And he uses it again. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. He's speaking about many forms of sin, many ways to commit sin. The word is speaking of sin. He's saying you will never stumble. If you're adding to your faith, you can cease from sin. How does that work though? He said if these things are yours and abound. That's the point. When sin creeps into our lives, it is because we're not Submitting to the Word of God. We're not applying it. We're not growing in it. We're not trusting in its provision and the promise of God. And lastly, related to that, the the fact that He says you will never stumble, He says, for so an entrance will be supplied abundantly to you into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has promised us wide passage into heaven. He uses, again, a strengthened Form of a word that word supplied it is from a word which actually means to lead a stage chorus or dance but then it came to mean to defray the expenses of a chorus so later metaphorically to supply but it has the the prefix epi which is intensive and so vine rightly defines it as to supply fully and abundantly but he pairs that with a word that's translated abundantly which strong defines as copiously and here is the intended effect. An entrance will be abundantly fully supplied to you into the everlasting kingdom. How much more confidence do we need? Abundantly fully supplied. He could have just said, an entrance will be fully supplied, but he said, An entrance will be abundantly fully supplied to you in the everlasting kingdom. Sometimes people talk about, I just I hope that I make it in. It may be barely, but I hope that I make it in. If if you think that if you make it at all, you will be barely making it in. Something is wrong in your life. That's why you don't have the confidence. Because Peter, by inspiration of the Spirit, is saying that the promise of heaven, the entrance, is wide open. It's an eight-lane highway for any who want to travel it by the rules of the New Testament. You can get in, and it will not be barely by the skin of your teeth. It will be abundantly by the grace of God. In Jude 24 Jude puts it this way, He is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. Hebrews 7 and verse 25 about the high priesthood of Jesus, He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him. Or the superlative used by Paul in Romans 8 and verse 37, In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. The idea is super conquerors, but again notice the condition He says, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the kingdom. It is the Greek phrase gar houtos, or houtos. And it means in this way, in this manner. And it points back to the diligence of verse 5. And it connects with this abundant supply. Because the same word used for supply in verse 11 is used for... Adding or supplying, depending on your translation in verse 5. He's saying, If you abundantly supply to your faith these virtues, God will abundantly supply you an entrance into heaven. Oh, it's wide open. And we can get there and we will get there by God's grace. But that's the point. Do you trust in his promises? Do you trust that you have all things that pertain to life and godliness? Do you trust that you can live like Jesus lived? You can be. Who Jesus is in eternal glory. You, you can manifest the character of Jesus in your life by applying the New Testament. Do you believe that by God's grace and His promises that you can be protected from sin at all costs? That there is no temptation that has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful and provides that way of escape. And do you believe that that entrance into heaven is abundant and God's supplying it for you? the gospel. We need to trust in his promises. Indeed, they are exceedingly great and they are precious and we depend upon them. We need to participate in them so that one day we can be in heaven for eternity. We want to offer you an invitation today as you might be those who have not partaken the promises of God, because you can partake of some promises of God and start standing on the promises today by submitting to the Command to be baptized in water for the remission of your sins. Rise up and walk in newness of life. Be an heir of the grace of life, an heir of that crown of righteousness. But you've got to partake of that first promise, that if you submit to that command to be baptized, you will have your sins washed away, and you will be added to the kingdom, the body of Christ. Maybe that you've done so, and there's some other spiritual thing that we can assist you with here today. We invite you to come forward while we stand and sing.